and my children thought of her as, you know, the northern star. She was their guiding light. That is, until that light was extinguished by an unspeakable act when 23-year-old University of Georgia law student Tara Baker was murdered in her East Athens, Georgia home. It shocked the community and shook a tight-knit Southern family to its core. We have a body. Naturally, the first thing I said was, is she okay? And my dad said, no, son, she didn't make it, she's gone. And Meredith told me that they were looking at this as foul play, and I had to tell her then, I was like, I need you to stop talking. Tara didn't die. She was murdered. An investigation bungled, four persons of interest, and 20 years with no answers until now. Join us in one community's, one family's, one podcaster's search for the truth. This is Classic City Crime, The Tara Baker Story. I'm Cameron J. Hey there, welcome, welcome, welcome back to Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron Jay, and it sure does feel good to be here saying welcome again three times. I missed all of you so much over this past week, and I hope all of you are in good health and staying well and uplifted during these challenging times. I'll let you know that I've also checked in with the Baker family, and I'm happy to report that they too are doing well. Thank you for your patience as we took the week to reflect and to rest, and yes, to investigate and conduct new interviews to help us as we continue seeking the one thing we've all been looking for, justice for Tara. One thing that's really awesome that I have to give you all props for about the podcast is your amount of online interaction is phenomenal, and you know how to keep the conversations going and the theories spinning, that's for sure. And while there might not have been an episode last week, your passion did not subside online, your questions were ever-present, and I don't mind one bit. No, not at all. Your theories are quite interesting, and I want to say thank you. Thank you for staying engaged, and thank you for being in this fight with me. I must tell you, if I'm being honest, that it's not always easy. In fact, I did take a moment to rest a little bit this week, too. It also gave me quite a bit of time to sit back and just reflect on all of the information that we've taken in, and I know that you all agree when I say that it's been quite a lot of information for us to consume. But I had no idea that this podcast would become 90,000 listens strong, tens of thousands of social media interactions, and leads that never seem to end, all which is such a good thing. I am so, so grateful. You know, I must say I've learned not only a lot about Tara's case, but I've learned a lot about myself and my passions, and thank you for helping me pursue this new passion of mine. If you've been following along on social media, particularly in our CCC Insiders Facebook, you know quite a bit of work continued to happen over the last week. 
First, I was able to travel to meet my new friend, Chris, Tara's former boyfriend, who 20 years ago was a top suspect in the murder investigation. Today, we all know him to be innocent after he spoke out in an exclusive interview for the first time with Classic City Crime. You know, his love for Tara, even 20 years later, I've got to tell you, it was so real and so palpable. And his gratitude for all of you was really obvious. You know, he said to me as I climbed out of my car at a park we met at, halfway for me, halfway for him, plumbers need a hero too, and you're mine. And that reminded me that this podcast has been about so much more than just finding justice for Tara, though that is the number one thing. It's also been so healing for a lot of people. I mean, think about how much gratitude he must have, how much weight must be lifted with this off of his shoulders. Um, Chris, if you're listening, thanks so much, man. You're, You're a hero of mine in this, too. I also wanted to update you on the bombshell that I ended last week's episode with. Yes, someone did in fact say that their ex-boyfriend claimed to know details on the Tara Baker murder, pointing the finger at someone within the firm. But that person has made it quite, quite clear that they are not willing to cooperate with the podcast or the Baker family. It's truly a letdown, but you know, I've really learned along the past 15 weeks that sometimes you just have to lift your head, put your shoulders back, keep moving, and wait for the next lead. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We'll wait for the next person who is brave. And breaking news this week also, you have seen it on social media. I've been arguing from day one that the Baker family deserves to know the details of what happened to their daughter. Why was I so insistent about this detail? Well, because I believe in the right of every victim's family to know the truth about what happened to their loved one. Can you imagine going 20 years without knowing the truth, being told lie after lie, it happened this way or it happened that way? It's really devastating and hard for them to process. But should families be shielded from that? Well, I personally don't think that's my decision or any investigator's decision to make. So, after pressure from the podcast and all of you, and with the Baker family mobilizing to find out the truth by all means necessary... The Athens-Clark County Police Department actually met with them this past week and exclusively released to them, not me, the autopsy report. They now know exactly what happened to Tara Baker, details and all. And I ask you to join me right now in sending some prayers and some good thoughts to the family as they learn to grieve what is the final truth. Over the last 20 years, the story as to how Tara died has been a mystery to them, a constant changing story. You know, just as they would begin to process what happened to Tara, the investigators would change the story about what happened. And this is actually something that Miss Virginia spoke to in our first interview that I wanted to remind you of. I said, you tell me one thing, and I deal with it, I process it, I grieve over it, and then you come back about a month later and say, oh no, that wasn't the way it was at all, and I start all over again. And the sad part about this is it wasn't just changing words and changing stories. Two investigators actually took it upon themselves to once go to Ms. Baker's home, redacted autopsy report in hand, and proceeded to act out in a game of charades what happened to Tara, how the crime went down. But now because of you and all of your persistence, the Bakers now know the answer to how. That's one question off the list, though. Now we have two left to go. Who and why? 
Perhaps speaking to an investigator who worked on the case very closely and personally is just the right person to talk to. You've been waiting for it, and someone is finally here to speak to the investigation, what happened, what might have gone wrong, and their belief on the question of who. This is Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. As you know, I've been working extremely hard over the past 15, 16, 17-ish weeks to find someone, anyone familiar with this investigation willing to speak out. And it's been a rather hard thing to do until now. I am Lisa Walden, and from 2005 to 2007, I was a crime analyst at Athens-Clark County Police Department, and we worked on Terrace case um, almost daily. Lisa is now an attorney, and I got to chat by phone as the pandemic would have it this week. She really helped explain a lot about this case, and let's just say her familiarity with Tara's story did not begin with her work at the ACCPD. Honestly, I first learned about it. I was in, I was a junior, still an undergrad at Georgia when it happened, mm-hmm. um, and the story spread like wildfire, of course. Um, so when they brought me on as a crime analyst a few years later, It was really interesting. Most of my job was doing statistics and crime maps and data mining, but a chunk of our job, there were two of us, a chunk of our job was to um, review cold cases and help with major cases and um, find information online and data mining and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how they brought it to me. It's just like wanting a pair of fresh eyes on it Mm -hmm. and they were going through it every day and um, I just kind of got drawn into it that way. Oh, I thought about it constantly. I still think about it. I mean, I haven't been there in, gosh, what is it, 13 years now? And I still think about it constantly. And if I hear a case that's even remotely similar, I will send in a message to see if they've looked at that case or um, see if they've looked at this person. I keep my eyes open on all the people that I encountered throughout the case. And mm-hmm. um, it's it never leaves you. So Lisa was not a part of the initial investigation, which included people like Mark Durham, W.J. Smith, David Liedahl, and Mark Wallace, among many others. I asked her what she thought about the initial investigation in 2001. As all of you know, it's one I have personally been very critical of. You know, these are the same folks who told Miss Virginia that Tara had put up a hell of a fight and left a gold mine under her fingernails and, you know, let a potential suspect identify her body and told the Bakers they had been watching too much television. Yes, that first group. She was not a part of them. And while she did stop short of criticizing the early investigation, she did have this to say about the investigation she was handed when she came on in the mid-2000s. You know, it's easy to armchair quarterback and Monday morning quarterback. And I, it, a lot of the stuff didn't translate to paper. Like, it didn't look problematic on paper. Honestly, um, from what I understand, the Bakers may not have been treated as compassionately as one would hope or expect in such a situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm horribly sorry for that. I can only imagine their pain. Um, but the investigation itself, I mean, it looked okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a ton to work with because there was, it was the scene of a fire. There was a lot of soot. There was a lot of water damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody, 
when they first got there, no one knew they were dealing with a homicide. Like it was just a fire to start with. So there wasn't a lot of preservation to be done at first. Sure. Um, and subsequently, the family wanted Dr. Henry Lee to look at the case file, and he did. He spent an entire day going through it, asking questions, and he said that David Leadall and, and all of his people did a fine job at the scene, and he didn't have any recommendations or anything that he would have done differently. Miss Baker actually assisted me recently in reaching out to Dr. Henry Lee's office to help us find out more about what exactly he discovered and was allowed to see. Remember, it was the Bakers who offered to pay for his expertise on the case, a service they were never billed for. He was told he would have the opportunity to look, but according to the Bakers, he was told only if he reported directly to the police, not to them. I will let you know that the result of the outreach to Dr. Lee's office has not been successful because he's now in retirement and cannot corroborate the details of the meeting or what his official recommendations to the police department might have been. I do want to let you know, though, I have, through an unnamed source, uncovered photographic evidence of the police department meeting with Dr. Lee. Anyway, let's get back to Miss Walden's interview. Here's more on her thoughts from the 2001 investigation i think it was thorough in in the sense that there was a logical leap that you take because i mean to be honest what 58 percent of homicides are solved Mm -hmm. um so that means you know four out of ten homicides in the u.s are not solved um so you kind of go down the most logical avenues and the most logical is the boyfriends. That's mm-hmm. just where you go to start with. And they had to spend a lot of time on that. Sure. Um, they had to get, and it took longer than to do things like get cell phone records or e- everything just took longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they spent a lot of time on the boyfriend. They spent a lot of time on the classmate. Mm-hmm. I don't fault them for that at all. That's what I would have done had I had it. Here's a look at some of the things investigators admittedly in the beginning in 2001, let me clarify, did not do, and I have it on paper, them admitting to their faults on this. Number one, no luminol was used on the scene. Number two, did not process her car, nor did they find the one single towel the Bakers believe and saw in her washing machine that Mr. Baker found when he went to collect Tara's things. A towel that he pointed out to an officer on scene that day that police say never made it into their key evidence. But as you learn more about it and get deeper into it and look into it and read it so many times, you start <laughs> to notice little things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they definitely point in a different odd direction a different odd direction i did want to jump in here and note one thing while i personally believe the classmate is most likely innocent most likely it is worth noting that i have heard from multiple sources that many of the original investigators from the case still believe and will not let go of the belief that the classmate might have been involved I did want to concede one thing to Lisa that I know has made this case hard for every investigator who has had to take it on. Let's give credit where credit is due. One thing that's always been hard for me in my investigation is that you really do have four persons of interest here that really had interesting things going on in their life or in their relationship to Tara, which I'm sure did not make the investigation for you any easier. No, it it certainly didn't. And, um, 
I mean, she, this is horrible. She was a beautiful, wonderful human. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's enough to give anybody motive. You know, it could just, it's just really hard to narrow it down. And when you have four people and they all look like they could, but there's just not a lot of physical evidence, there's just not, there's nowhere to go. Remember that odd different direction Lisa mentioned that investigators took once she, Courtney Gale, Sean Potter, and David Griffith started looking at the case? I decided to ask her about when things started to come together and make sense for her. And let's find out what direction those suspicions pointed in. Um, you know, you go through, so you start out with this huge case file and you go through the normal stuff and you rule out the boyfriend right away. It's pretty easy to, and then, um, you start to think and you're like the, the fire department reported that the door was bolted. Um, so somebody has to have a key and her keys, like we have her keys. So who had a key to her place? And then it all just kind of clicks mm -hmm. and it's not even that it it just rules a lot of people out a lot of extraneous information suddenly doesn't matter so much because there's no access but there was no other car parked in front of her house there was no I mean there's a limited number of people that have keys to her house um, a limited number of people that have the opportunity to do something like this mm -hmm. um, and when you start when you get that one it's like the corner puzzle piece and then that narrows your your list down and helps you zero in on the handful of people. I want to tell you, we went so far as to, she had had her car serviced. We went so far as to look at where she had her car serviced to see if the person working on her car could have copied her keys. Mm. That's it. We couldn't find any evidence that they'd had her keys long enough to copy it, but it was just that detailed. Sure. Like who had keys, who had keys, and that was the piece that we were missing. Mm -hmm. It did lead to us looking at who had keys, and then that led to, um, I mean, obviously, the maintenance man had keys. He always had keys. Mm -hmm. He had a master key to every unit. Um the big thing is, so we start talking to him, and he's been interviewed several times. So there we have it. The person Lisa and other investigators feel is most likely responsible for Tara's death. In fact, Lisa went on to say that he was not interviewed by initial investigators in 2001. A source close to the investigation as well says that perhaps one of the initial investigators even invited this maintenance man to help them show how someone might gain access to a window. Not a good idea, right? <laughs> when we come back, we go a little deeper with Lisa and ask her why she thinks the maintenance man could be involved, and I ask her point blank, could she be wrong? We'll be right back. How about a little break for Classic City Crime announcements? Number one, be sure to check out the Fraud Busting Podcast, where I've teamed up with Fraud Busting Body Language Expert Tracy Brown to discuss Tara's case. Also, shout out to our friends at Avid Bookshop. They are doing contact-free pickup orders. In fact, there's one waiting for one of you right now. We'll be doing a giveaway this week on social media. Be sure to check it out. And, of course, we are always looking for sponsors to help us continue telling the story of Tara Louise Baker, and you can email us at classiccitycrime at gmail.com for more information. Let's get back to the Tara Baker story. 
So I'll be quite upfront and honest with you. I told Miss Walden about my issues with this theory, although I will tell you I've not rolled it out in my heart or my investigation. We do have access with this theory. We do have opportunity and Tara being home alone. What bothers me is I do not feel there's much motive here. And of course, my feelings don't really matter much. So here's what she said about the lack of motive. It could just be a crime of opportunity. His, um, we actually have a work order on file where he was supposed to be, I think it was 140 phone drive Mm -hmm. at 8 a.m. Like first thing that morning, he had a maintenance call. So he was supposed to be on Bond Drive that morning, even though he said he was somewhere else. And um, maybe he just rolled by and noticed she, there was only one car in the driveway. I mean, if he's angry, if he's high, if he's... I'm sure he'd seen her before, being our maintenance man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's in the area. He's He matches the description of the person running westward from her backyard through other backyards and then um the neighbor whose house he was supposed to be doing maintenance at reported to us that she was awoken it's a wide window but she was dead asleep and said she was awakened between 8 a.m and 11 a.m by the maintenance man entering her home um so he was in that area he was supposed to be in that area I don't know if it was just happenstance. We have a report that a week before Tara was murdered, the maintenance man spoke with three tenants in another unit, three female tenants, and approached them with a knife that he said that he found outside next to their air conditioning and told them that someone could really hurt them with that and to be careful. And that was just a week prior. So I can concede, I totally see why her investigation centered around this man, but if I'm being honest, I'm not sold yet, and it's not because I don't feel there's good reason to consider the maintenance man as a possibility. I think there is. But I also believe there's so many problems with the theory, and I was quite candid with Lisa about my opinions on that. And so let me play devil's advocate here, Lisa, for just a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that does bother me about the maintenance man theory, and I do, I do like the theory as we like to say, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, like it. If you do have someone who is a predator or is off the hinge or someone like a maintenance man who would have had access Mm -hmm. to tools and different things like that, do you find it odd that nothing was brought to the apartment to take care of this or to do this? Or do you think it was not a thought out thing and spur of the moment? I mean... Oh, I definitely think it was not thought out and very spur of the moment. Who knows what he had on it? Who knows? I mean, I just, he just happened to be there and see her there or walk in on her there. And Mm -hmm. you have a really good theory here that's backed up by facts and a a thorough investigation, it sounds like Mm -hmm. to me. Why do you feel that 20 years later, multiple investigators later, hundreds of witnesses and interviews later, that no arrest has been made in this case? Um, honestly, we just, there's not enough probable cause. Um, we need someone who saw him with the laptop, someone that he um, confessed to. We need people to come forward. It's, it's not as cut and dry as it is on TV. Like, we actually, we can't see everything. And the police department needs those people to come forward and say something. And even if they think it's a tiny thing, 
uh, and people have come forward about the lawyer, we need people to come forward and, you know, perhaps it's not the maintenance man, but that we, we need that evidence. We need to know. My initial thought was, perhaps the reason people haven't been able to establish the real connection, or why a confession from the maintenance guy isn't there, and why the laptop can't be linked to him is really quite simple. Maybe they're focusing on the wrong guy with access to Tara's life, and who would have been welcomed in her home. Or maybe he didn't kill Tara, and might have been involved in some other way. I think there really are a lot of possibilities here. But one thing that has bothered me during this entire investigation is not that initial investigators focused on the classmate or the boyfriend, Chris, or that the later investigators chose to focus on the maintenance man. What bothers me so much is that it seems both groups of investigators chose to under-investigate the theory of the attorney or someone close to him being involved. So I took the opportunity to ask Lisa what she thought about what we've uncovered and the dozens of witnesses who have come forward and have been emboldened to speak out about the attorney 20 years later. And here's what she had to say. The attorney that she worked with, some of that information didn't come out until later. A lot of the suspicions weren't relayed to us till much later. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the things that people have come forth and said about the scratches and... Um, acting strange, and that that doesn't 100% match up with the investigation. Mm-hmm. He was interviewed. He absolutely was interviewed. Um, we went through his cell records. They weren't interacting with each other in the way that it's kind of been alluded to. I want to add one thing in here. There absolutely was communication between Tara and the attorney by all accounts that I have heard. While they may not have been calling one another over and over on Tara's cell or home phone, there are several things we can think of. Number one, the law school phones. Number two, she was still dropping by to see him at the firm, a place she no longer worked. She had called her mother about him the week of her death, and it has been confirmed by two sources that he sent her flowers on at least one occasion. And remember, yes, he had that closed-door meeting with Tara the week of her murder in his office. Um, it doesn't seem like he was after her. He wasn't trying to contact her. There were actually, the day before her death, there were calls from her to him that were less than a minute long, you know, indicating he didn't answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, she did leave one message for him, mm-hmm. um, wanting him to meet her, her and her friends out for her birthday that weekend. Um, but he didn't return the call. We don't have any indication that there was any kind of ongoing relationship or anything happening. Um, So he just wasn't very viable. I also mentioned the wives that I've not heard anyone yet say were interviewed. The cat never being established. The scratches never looked into. The interviews of the co-workers never conducted. She did agree that she regrets some of the people who have spoken to me did not come forward sooner. Though I believe many of them have, or have at least tried. I mean, honestly, I wish those things had come up in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, And then maybe they would have been vetted, but it's kind of hard to go back 20 years after the fact and say, hey, did you have a cat? (laughs) Hey, was your husband acting weird? Was he? It's just, it's a lot and it's a little too late. I I mean, these are questions that could be asked, but I wasn't around at the time that they were interviewing him. Mm -hmm. But they 
they did interview him. They did go through his phone records. Um, and there was just, there just wasn't as much there as I think people are currently remembering. All in all, here's what I think we've learned from Lisa this week. The investigators did put a lot of time into the case, at some points over the last 20 years much more than others, let's be real. But for some reason, here we still are. Far from the truth. Far from an arrest. Far from a conviction. Here's the last bit of our conversation, a lightning round, if you will. Did you ever interview the attorney for whom Tara worked with at the firm? Um, yeah, the one in question? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. And did you ever interview the classmate? Yes. And how did you feel about him? Um, he was unusual, you know, but there's lots of unusual people. And did any of these persons of interest, the maintenance man, the boyfriend, the attorney, um, or the classmate, did any of them willingly provide DNA? Um, not that I'm aware of, no. Okay. And do you believe that there was any DNA recovered from the scene? I can't comment on that. Okay. And do you believe Tara knew the person who killed her? Maybe tangentially, not in any real way. Okay. And what do you think happened to the laptop? Why do you feel that it was taken with nothing else being taken from her home? Honestly, I think it was just something quick that looked like it might be worth money. Finally, I asked Lisa a question that I try to ask every single person I interview. Do you have a word to the Baker family? And she did. I am so sorry for your loss, and I know that um, that doesn't do much now, but I think about her all the time to this day, years and years later. She's affected my life in ways that... I can't even explain that I never thought was possible when I first heard about it in undergrad. Um, and I don't think that I will ever stop thinking about it and caring mm. and caring about her life and the part that she didn't get to finish. And for the person responsible for the case that she still thinks of to this day, Lisa Walden had this to say. And, you know, as an investigator, I'm sure that there's a lot of emotion, um, you know, with you about the fact that someone isn't in jail or isn't, you know, being prosecuted for this crime. What would you say to the killer if he or she is listening? It's time to unburden yourself, to, um, to go through the steps, to, to tell the truth, to... Let justice be done and let God take care of it. Um, it's, it's just time to do it for everyone else. Pretty interesting interview, right? It was really nice to finally have some things be corroborated and some questions be answered by someone from the inside. So Lisa, if you are listening, I appreciate you, your bravery, and your willingness to speak out. All right, so I know you're all thinking, what do I think about everything after resting this week, after investigating, after all we've learned and all that's still to come? Here are a few of my initial hot takes from this. Number one, I feel there is a good reason to look at this person of interest. There, I said it. I think it is interesting that things do lead to the maintenance man. I can concede that. But I still feel, based on my interview with Lisa, that the attorney his life at the time, the people surrounding him, and his relationship with Tara Louise Baker has for 20 years been cast to the side. 
Maybe he didn't kill Tara, but perhaps someone around him did. Maybe he knows more than he's told police. He should at least be vetted thoroughly. Every move, every action accounted for. After all, it seems like every other suspect, Chris, the classmate, the maintenance man, have undergone that level of scrutiny. Why should the attorney and those around him escape that? Now, there has been a lot I've learned this week that I have to be careful about how I share it with you and when, but I want you to know this. I am getting leads that continue to point one way, and I'm sure you can guess which way that is. I don't think it's by chance either, but I do want to go ahead and share one of these new leads with you. An anonymous source came forward the day before this episode was released regarding the ant. Many of you have heard him be discussed as the person who might have had Tara's laptop and who boasted in some circles about being involved in Tara's death. And you'll remember that some investigators say his information and his story about what happened to Tara does not match what really did. But you see, after talking to this person, I'm not so convinced of that. Not only did I believe she knew specific details about the crime, but she also said she had not only met Ant, but had met another person of interest in this case at a certain downtown bar. The name she gave? Well, it doesn't belong to the maintenance man. And it's the only other person of interest we've looked at with a link to drugs and a supposed link to Ant. I'll have more on this next week, including an interview. We've just got to get the details of that sorted out to protect the witness involved. Totally unrelated now. When I first talked to FBI profiler Jeffrey Rennick, I admittedly didn't know much about Tara's case. Well, not nearly as much as someone needing a former FBI profiler's help should know. Nevertheless, he did offer some good advice and interesting takes on Tara's killing. I want to replay something for you that he said at the time, which I admit I shrugged off. But after this last week off investigating, talking with people, and new experts, I don't think it's something to be ignored at all. Take a listen back to this. I feel, you know, there's a, there's a high level, I think there's a strong probability that he didn't go there, whoever it was that went there that night, and I don't think you should rule out a woman, because we don't know if she had any problems with women, or, or we don't know, it's amazing what you don't know about people, so anytime you make an assumption, you're excluding a, a potential. A scorned lover, a jealous lover, a woman? why we're looking into it and who might be involved and why some believe it's not a bad theory for police to explore at all. Next time on Classic City Crime, I'm Cameron J. Thanks for tuning in to another week of Classic City Crime hosted by me, Cameron J., and co-produced by Kyle Kazaya. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Classic City Crime or on the web at ClassicCityCrime.com. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay well, be well. See you next Thursday.